I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. Hello, Ben. Hello, Agnes. How are things? Good. How are you? I am good. Yeah. (laughs) Force positivity. We've got two great interviews for you guys this episode, but you have some exciting International Affairs Journal news to share with us, don't you? I do. Yes. As regular listeners will know, one of my other jobs is to help out with the International Affairs Journal at Chatham House. And during lockdown, we have launched a new live event series, which we're using the ubiquitous Zoom to provide to everybody, which is open to the public. Anyone can anyone can come and watch these sessions. But basically, they're featuring international affairs authors from the past and talking about the research that they've published with us, but maybe also thinking about the lessons we can learn for the ongoing pandemic. And this week is very exciting for me as someone who did history at uni, because we have got historian Margaret McMillan, who is just a dreamboat and heroine more broadly. Friend yeah. of the pod, former former pod interviewee, former wreath lecturer in that order. But she's going to be talking to us this week about a previous global health crisis, the uh, Spanish flu pandemic, which many of you will know, I'm sure, killed millions and millions of people in the aftermath of the First World War and was really devastating across the whole world. And that combined with the war and the economic struggles that both of those caused really meant that there could be some lessons to be learned from how society rebuilt in the aftermath of those disasters. So we're going to be talking to Margaret about that and it should be really interesting. Long-term listeners of the podcast will remember that Margaret appeared on one of our earlier episodes, episode 25, on the legacy of the Paris Peace Conference. And you and I are such fangirls of hers that you kept in her praising our questions because we were so chuffed with it. She's amazing and one of the biggest brains in sort of modern history at the moment, I would say. Mm. So yeah, so that'll be fun. And there will be a video of the event online afterwards as well so uh, people can watch that on the Chatham House website. Well but who did you speak to this week? So this week I spoke to Avashia Neja who is an associate fellow with our Asia Pacific program but who is also the director of Tandem Research which is an Indian research organisation which looks at the future of work and the role of technology in in society and and how things like artificial intelligence are going to be changing the way that we live. And we were speaking about the experience of coronavirus in India, in Goa, where she's based, and looking at the government's response there. And in particular, an app that they have developed, which is going to hopefully enable them to improve their contact tracing and help contain the spread of the virus. So who did you speak to, Agnes? Well, I spoke to James Ball, Mm -hmm. who is the global editor of a website, which I, it turns out there is a word in this website I can't really say. So apologies (laughs) to everybody who's listening and throughout the interview. James is the global editor at the Bureau for Investigative Journalism. Go on, Ben, you try. That was good. Investigative. Really hard. I just can't do it. I'm so sorry. He's also a columnist at the New European, has, has written lots of books. And we had a chat about how journalism has sort of changed more broadly over the last 10 years, what corona has done to it, you know, what should the role of the media be during a global pandemic? Mm. Should it be to disperse information or hold governments to account? It is a interesting chat. So, yeah. Nice one. Let's have a listen. Okay, so today I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Uvashia Neja, who is an Associate Fellow in the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House. And she's based in Goa, India, where she is the Founding Director of Tandem Research, which specialises in the future of work and AI's impact on society. Uvashi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. 
So I just wondered if you could tell us a bit about what the situation in India has been so far during this pandemic, just from the from the health point of view. There's a couple of things that really stand out, right? One, India has had perhaps the harshest national lockdown of any country in the world. And we are now entering our fourth phase of lockdown. And as a result of that lockdown, what we see is that beyond the health crisis, we also have two other crises that have emerged. One is an economic crisis. And the third is a humanitarian crisis. Mm. Uh, and, and the longer term effects of both of these are likely to be immense. They're likely to stay with us for a long time, possibly even beyond the health crisis. Mm. So I think what, what this really showed us is the need for kind of systems thinking, the need for kind of thinking through second order and third order effects uh, as we think about what are the best policies to respond to the crisis. The aim of the lockdown in some sense was to obviously flatten the curve, right? Mm -hmm. But also to ensure that health facilities, health infrastructure had time to prepare for when the lockdown got lifted. But one of the issues that we see is that there is a major lack of information or credible information or there's been the politicization of health information. So it's very hard to be able to ascertain whether that preparedness has happened or not. The same goes for the economic crisis. Finance ministers recently announced a financial package, but I'm not an economist, so I won't comment on that. But the, a number of very senior economists have mentioned that this is not likely to be enough and India is, is likely to see negative GDP growth for the coming few quarters. But the most worrying crisis, I think, is the humanitarian crisis, and that refers to, in particular, the migrant workers. So we have a huge migrant worker population who typically migrate from rural areas to urban areas, and they do all the heavy lifting in some sense that keeps our cities running, from building roads, from providing essential services, etc. And so when the government announced the lockdown and said everyone go home, and they shut all public transport, they shut all interstate travel, these migrant workers were stranded. And today we're two months into the lockdown and migrant workers are still walking home two, three hundred, four, five hundred kilometers without access to food, without access to health services, and most importantly, without access to any information. So that humanitarian crisis that has been created as a result of the lack of planning and the lack of thinking through those second and third order effects is in one sense, I think, the, is, is what is going to stay with us for a very, very long time. Obviously, the health crisis is, is going to stay with us. That depends a little bit on you know, the trajectory of the pandemic, how quickly we can find a vaccine, and a number of other things. But the humanitarian crisis has been, has been man-made, has been a result of bad policy. What do you think would have, I mean, obviously it's an enormous question, but what do you, what do you think would have been a way of avoiding that? Because it, it seems that these measures, maybe India's lockdown has been more severe than in other countries, but the rationale behind it has been similar to how most countries have approached this, this pandemic. So how could they have done things differently, do you think? I mean, on the, on the migrant worker crisis, I mean, there's simple things that they could have done. They could have ensured that they had adequate financial resources, they had adequate food supplies, they had shelter to be able to stay in place so that they didn't feel the need to walk back home. Right? Those are things that could have easily been done. We've had various waves of this lockdown. We're now in the fourth phase of the lockdown. And at no phase in the lockdown has there been any planning for the migrant workers. So it would have been possible to actually keep them where they are and provide them that basic income support that they needed because most of them are daily wage workers. They don't have the kind of savings that you and I might have. They're not able to plan for three weeks, four weeks ahead. So if you can provide them what they need, where they are, that's, that would have been a huge, huge positive step, right? And equally provide them with information. I think what we're also seeing is that in the various speeches the Prime Minister has made to the country, not once has the issue of migrant workers been addressed. These people need basic information. Where can they get their food supplies? Are the buses running? Is there a staggered way in which they can go home? What are the provisions for them? Do they need to get a test before? Can they? Where do they get the test? So all these kind of things are up are surely feasible, but they were not done. So even though this has, the lockdown has been a response by most governments across the world, the lockdown is, is only effective if you don't create multiple other crises at the same time. And how has the health system held up? Do you think in that sense, the lockdown has, has sort of served its purpose? 
You know, it's very hard to say. I think, like I was saying earlier, one of the big problems is that there's just not enough credible information coming out from the government. There's definitely a politicization of health information. We already see political parties, you know, very happily accusing each other of totally irrelevant things at this point. So it's hard to actually say whether the government has managed to prepare itself adequately and managed to prepare the public health infrastructure adequately. So I, I don't want to make an un, a guess on this, right? And because there isn't enough evidence. But obviously, is that the lack of information about this would mean that the preparation hasn't been quite what it should have been. Otherwise, they would be screaming from the rooftops all the brilliant things they've done to get the public health system in place. Sometimes the things that are left unsaid <laughs> speak loudest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of the big debates that has been looming in the UK during this, during this crisis has been the UK's preparedness in terms of testing and its ability to test large swathes of the population at once. Could you speak a bit about India's preparation in in that sense, like what is the testing infrastructure that exists at the moment? We we aren't doing enough tests, right? There's enough evidence to say that we just haven't been testing enough. Even after this lockdown or during this lockdown, sure, we have built some testing capacity, but nowhere near what we need to build, right? And that's that's not a problem in India alone. I mean, you see that even in industrialized economies like the UK, like the US, just struggling to have enough tests in place. But I think what's happening in, in countries like India and, and many others is that because there's a lack of testing capacity, because there's a lack of state capacity to be able to respond to this, um, there's a huge reliance on tech solutions. So India has recently rolled out an app for automatic contact tracing the app is called the Arogya Setu app and so that currently seems to be its main strategy for ensuring that it is able to compensate for the lack of testing right but obviously the problem here is that this this is a contact tracing app that relies on people's own self-assessment so that that could be false right or it could be it could be inaccurate or it could be intentionally inaccurate and if you don't accompany contact tracing applications with actual physical testing possibilities, there's a real chance that you're going to create panic, you're going to create discrimination. So to make automatic contact tracing a workable solution, it has to be supplemented by the existence of manual testing, by the existence of physical public health infrastructure. So imagine if you get a notification on your app that you are high risk, but you have no way of accessing a test or you have no way of reaching a hospital, um, then that sounds like a recipe for disaster, really. And the irony here is that India is relying on automatic contact testing, even though we actually have a very, very strong history of successful manual contact tracing. So we, you know, we have dealt with tuberculosis, we have dealt with polio, we have a, a huge number of frontline health workers who are in fact very, very skilled at doing exactly this and going door to door and understanding who people met, why did they meet, oh, and where do they meet them, et cetera, right? And the point here is also that manual that contact tracing is not just about identifying who has a risk or who has been where. It's also about giving people counseling. It's also about people giving people advice. It's also about, in some sense, hand-holding through what is potentially a very, very traumatic moment in their lives, right? You're imagining you're trying to get some mother to imagine where her kid has been over the past 10 days and who else he might have met. That, that's quite stressful at, at an individual level. So to just have an app do that and then have nothing else to support you is unlikely to give you the outcomes that you want. The other set of problems with this is that, you know, by the government's own admission, you need to have for 55% of the population using the app for the app to be successful, right? right. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at the uh, internet penetration in India and you look at smartphone penetration in India, it's only 40% of the population that has a smartphone. So even if every person with a smartphone used the app, you still don't get to that 55% number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the larger problem here is that even that 40% number is actually not accurate because what we see in India is that, especially in tier two towns and in villages, people have shared mobile phones. So having a phone doesn't tell you that that individual has a phone, right? It's a community phone, it could be in a family. And typically when you have shared mobile phones, women don't have access to that phone or other kind of marginal or other marginalized groups won't have of access course. to the phone. Mm -hmm. 
So that 40% number is anyway not reliable as well, right? Mm-hmm. So on the basic efficacy counts of automatic tracing, whether it's in terms of do you hit the numbers that you need, right? Or whether it's in terms of do, are you able to then provide people access to the public health facilities that they need, it fails on both those counts, right? And then there is a whole other set of issues around privacy, around discrimination, around surveillance that have not been adequately addressed by the app, right? So mm-hmm. in some sense, your first goal in terms of meeting your health objectives, you're not going to meet that. And then there's all these second order and third order risks that haven't been accounted for. Yeah, absolutely. And beyond the question of whether it's effective, I guess there must be, as with all of our debates around technology at the moment, there must be these other issues that you have around around privacy and, and surveillance and sort of more kind of ethical concerns, I suppose. Do you have a sense that the thinking has been done by the app developers on these sorts of risks? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's huge privacy concerns. If you look at the way the app has been built, So principles of like data minimization, right? Which means that you only collect the data that you need or purpose limitation, which means that the app should only be used for the purpose for which is specified, right? Which in some sense have now become or are very quickly becoming kind of standards in privacy policy. If you look at GDPR is a good example. So the app, the app doesn't do either of those, right? So to give you a simple example, to do contact tracing, I just need to know that you and I met. I don't need to know where we met. So your simple GPS Bluetooth data will give you that. You don't need location data as well, right? Mm -hmm. But the Indian app has location data as well. So that's a simple example of there not being that data minimization requirement. And there's a huge risk that if you're able, if you have that location data as well, that it will result in the surveillance of populations, right? Uh, And particularly over the past couple of years, we've seen the Indian state demonstrate a great amount of enthusiasm for technologies that enable the mass surveillance of its population. So it is in that context that having no data minimization on an app like this becomes even more worrying. Right. Mm -hmm. The other issue is around purpose limitation. So already, if the app was to be used to only for contact tracing and nothing else, that's one conversation. But the app is already being used uh, to get a curfew pass to access telemedicine. Employers are making it mandatory for employees to have the app. And you see this particularly in the case of low-wage workers. So some of our so-called essential workers who are your delivery boys who are making sure that, you know, all of middle-class India is well-fed through this lockdown are being forced to download the app, right, from, from the perspective of customer safety. So what we, so we're seeing that there's this kind of mission creep or even like a mission leap in some sense, right, which is baked into the app. And that is very worrying for both privacy and surveillance concerns. But I think the larger issue is actually not a privacy issue. I don't think privacy is an absolute right. I do think that there are certain situations in which, as a society, we can decide we are willing to forego certain parts of our privacy for greater public benefit, right? I do think we are in one of those situations today. So in some sense, you make a social contract, right? You say, okay, I'll give you, I forego my privacy and I expect X, X, Y, Z in return. So there's a kind of trade-off. But what makes that trade-off valid or what makes that trade-off legitimate is that it should be embedded in a framework of accountability. That to me is the bigger problem, right? That unless we have systems of accountability, unless we have, and these systems are robust, they're transparent, they're accessible, only in that context can a privacy trade-off be legitimate. If you don't have those accountability systems, then a privacy trade-off is, is deeply problematic. So that's the issue here. And we see this in the case of the app. So for an example, the government in the terms and conditions of the app, it very clearly says that the government takes no liability for any wrong identification as a result of the app, right? But at the same time, you're making it mandatory for accessing public transport. Right. So at a very kind of, you know, basic level, there's an accountability issue there. It's also not clear which ministry is actually in charge or which ministries the data is going to be shared with or under which conditions private sector actors might have access to the data. There's also no sunset clause on the app. Right. Which is to say that, OK, now this is over and we can shut it down. Right. So yes, the basic yes. systems of accountability are not in place, which is what makes privacy a bigger concern. And I think that's where our attention should be focused, because obviously we are all 
facing a crisis of unprecedented proportions, of unprecedented magnitude, and states, governments, businesses, individuals are already struggling to find solutions, right? So unless we have a system of trust and accountability, it's very hard to see how this is going to work out in a way that is rights protecting, that is civil liberties protecting. And in some sense, has a, we need to have a longer view. It'll become very hard to kind of crawl back on some of these things, you know, once we've opened Pandora's box, so to speak. Yeah. On that as well, has this app been developed by the government or by the private sector? Or is it some kind of shady hybrid partnership situation? Because I'm just, I was wondering just what you were saying there on accountability mechanisms as well. And, and if we increasingly rely on the private sector to develop these kind of governance solutions in a way, that also leads to all sorts of other problems, doesn't it, in, in, terms, of, yeah. in terms of representation and yeah. accountability? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think you nailed it, right? Like who has built it and what is the accountability there? So the app has officially been built by a set of volunteers. These volunteers are private citizens who have in many previous instances also contributed to building digital infrastructure for the state. So it was also volunteers who built our Aadhaar system. It was also volunteers who are building a number of the other kind of the health stack. It's unclear. Let's put it this way, right? It is not in the public domain with clarity on who has built it. The only information that we have is volunteers. We all have very, very good, informed, educated guesses on who these volunteers are and what their affiliations are and what their interests are. But those educated guesses are surely not enough if you're going to roll out something on a countrywide mandatory basis. I mean, in fact, like I think two days ago, in, there was even a newspaper article that mentioned who the chief kind of architects of this project are and had mugshots of all their faces and their description, etc. But they're not democratically accountable individuals or organizations. Just... Finally, I think I wanted to ask, maybe this is a bit of a horizon scanning question, but I I wondered if this particular case of the tracing app is an example of the limitations of putting our faith in technology to provide solutions to big problems like this. Is there a sense in which we're often told that at some point we're all going to be wandering around with microchips in our brains that are monitoring everything and that this is going to be the the future of the world, some kind of human-machine hybrid thing? Does this kind of case prove that actually we still need kind of analog solutions to things (laughs) as well and we can't expect uh, something on your smartphone to just solve everything i think it proves that to you and me i'm not sure if it proves it more broadly i i do worry that we were anyway i think on a part of the society of kind of embracing this kind of technological determinism and technological solutionism where tech was kind of being posed as a solution to very complex social problems and i feel that this post-covid or this COVID moment has accelerated that problem. Tech is being proposed as a solution to absolutely everything from contact tracing to education to how we do webinars, etc. It's almost like we're not even being given a second to pause and think what could be the other solutions here and must they all lie with technology tools, right? And I ask this for, I think there are two things that really stand out to me about this. One is the question of democratic accountability, which we already discussed. So if you look at the Apple and Google contact tracing app, so it's great, right? That's a, that's a privacy protecting app because the data is stored on your phones and the data doesn't go to a centralized server. But that question of where the data should be stored should be a democratic decision. It should involve communities. It should involve governments, right? Sure. But here you have technology companies making a decision in the form of a technological solution, which actually should be a decision that that happens through public deliberation. We might still say that we want it stored on our phones and not on a centralized server, right? But that, but the question is, where is that decision being made, right? And now, if this contact tracing app comes preloaded into all our iOS, right, then we have no decision making on this, right? So I think that's one of the issues that stands out to me about the current moment. But the second thing that I've been thinking about is that obviously we are headed for a major job crisis, right? Whether it's in India and in the UK or the US, we're seeing an economic downturn that none of us could have imagined, right? So this to me seems to be the time to be investing in humans and not technology. 
So if you can hire manual contact tracers and you can give people jobs as manual contact tracers and you can skill them, that seems to be the better way to go. I mean, similarly, on, on online education, I've just been reading a lot about it today, so therefore I'm talking about it. Um, you know, we're all kind of rushing to kind of e-learning, online learning solutions. But what if instead we invested in our teachers and made sure instead of they having one teacher for 30 students, we had one teacher for two students or one teacher for three students, right? Mm -hmm. Then you would avoid, you could do social distancing, but you could also create jobs, right? You could also create skills. You would also create kind of community level ownership over addressing this crisis that is not going away anytime soon. So I deeply worry about the extent and the pace at which we are embracing tech solutions as the answer and not taking this moment to really reflect on where we want tech and how we want tech, right? Like I'm not a Luddite in any way. I'm not saying yes app or no app, but yeah, what sure. kind of app, right? Like how do we build it better? How do we build it wiser? Absolutely. Avashi Anesia, thank you so much for speaking about that with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So I'm here with James Ball, who is the global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. He's also the author of many books, my favorite being The Infographic History of the World. He has a new book coming out in August, which you can pre-order, which is called The System, Who Owns the Internet and How It Owns Us? And it's published by Bloomsbury. Thank you so much, James. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to interview somebody who actually listens to the podcast. <laughs> so firstly... What does the Bureau of Investigative Journalism do? So we are a not-for-profit, which handily does investigative journalism. We're not, we're not horribly misbranded. But what we try to do is we're mostly foundation-funded, and we try to sort of fill the gaps that other journalistic outlets miss because, you know, we do really respect the work at a lot of newspapers, sort of in the UK and internationally, broadcasters, etc. But we think sort of systemic issues, especially either in local journalism or in international journalism, tend to get reported less than they should. There's always kind of national scandals to run at or particular individual stories. So we try and sort of support local investigative journalism or international investigative journalism, which is my team. And we try and do that on issues of sort of real scale and importance that don't just apply to one country. So we've got reporting projects on the environmental impact of food, on global health, on big data and automation in sort of government decision making, that sort of big topic area. And yeah, there's, there's about 20 of us now, 25 of us. And uh, just to clarify, do you do the reporting yourselves or is it that you help journalists to report? So we are an actual investigative newsroom. We partner with existing outlets to get our things to big audiences and we try to get our stuff in the country that it's about. So if we're reporting on the sort of tobacco industry in Indonesia, we'll try and publish it in Indonesia as well as elsewhere. And so we will often team up and do joint reporting projects with other places but we are not really about training and we're not, you know, here's best practice how to do things. We collaborate and we chat, but we hire journalists and we run, we run a newsroom. And you're based in London? We are indeed. We have remote workers. Everyone right now is a remote worker, but we do have people across the UK. We've got regular freelancers across the world and we report internationally, but we are very much UK based. How do you think the media can avoid being cheerleaders, but still keep the favour and trust of the public? I think, honestly, it's by actually trying to do it. And I think parts of the media, especially sort of bits of the UK media, to be honest, get quite used to just looking for cheap shots, because that's almost just the good day-to-day, fill-some-pages type coverage. You know, this, this minister used a slightly different phrase from this minister. Do they disagree? Let's stir up a row. And it's sort of seen as a bit of harmless fun almost. And that's kind of fine in peacetime. You know, not every bit of journalism needs to be 
eat your gruel, do your homework. You know, there's a reason that we have features sections and crosswords and all of that. And not every bit of news needs to be desperately serious. But if we take the attitude of constantly trying to catch people out and constantly sort of looking to needle to a global pandemic, I think we do actually piss off bits of the audience that we shouldn't. You know, let's not needlessly antagonise people. I think some people have just decided to treat this as a culture war and will cheer on or condemn whatever their government is doing. I think a lot more people are in the middle just trying to work out, are they doing the right thing? What should I be doing? What does this rule mean? Did someone screw up? Is someone to blame? And I think if you're actually trying to shed light, not heat, it means people trust you when you follow an assessment. And if something is a reasonable, credible plan, you just put it across as such. But it does let you question aspects of it. It does let you get into the portrait of what went right, what went wrong. And I think we are seeing lots of that kind of journalism. It's just easy to be distracted by the stuff that's either sort of someone who will never say that anyone has ever made a mistake or someone who will never say that someone's done it something right. So I think it's shedding light, not heat. What a phrase, James. Do you feel at the moment in the UK, and obviously we are in exceptional circumstances, do you feel like the public trusts the media? It's always difficult to answer this question. Part of the problem with this is the public lie. If you ask people how much alcohol they drink and add up all of the responses, you get far, far less alcohol than we can measure being sold from how much tax is paid on it. So we all systemically, just like we tell the doctor or tell anyone else, if we get surveyed, we, you know, round it down a little bit. You know, well, I might have had a couple of pints extra this week, but usually I only drink x much and we do this for did you vote did you you know give to charity anything that we think we should answer we tend to exaggerate a bit we sort of put the best version of ourselves forwards and so if you ask people what they want from the media for example they will say much more serious and impartial reporting much less of that gossip don't want that you know no opinion and then if you look at what people actually read and what they actually buy that that is not what they do i think in britain skepticism even cynicism about the media has become quite fashionable and so we all sort of answer these surveys saying well no we don't trust reporting very much and oh journalists i don't trust them but we'll still read quite a lot of news we'll still watch news at 10 on the bbc we still consume it. I don't think that means we should be complacent, but I think the figures are exaggerated on how bad things are. I think the British media is better than a lot of countries that have better headline trust figures because of all of these cultural factors. I think the problem is trust is trending downwards and there's a habit amongst journalists and people, you know, people like me to sort of go, the public trust is less. We must change the public rather than kind of going, hang on, what are we doing wrong that this is tracking downwards? So I think one of the biggest changes that one can point to in the way that information is disseminated now is obviously social media. I'm not going to ask you the rather boring how has social media changed journalism question, but as a result, there has been a sort of democratisation of opinion and news. It's not that there are like four newspaper editors who control Um, how people receive or hear the big important decisions of the day. We get it from lots and lots of different angles now, which obviously means more noise. Do you feel like, as a result, social media has led to more of a distrust of the classic media? I think it's a bit nuanced. I think one of the biggest effects of social media is the opposite to what a lot of us say it is, in that it's the opposite of filter bubbles, It used to be that you would mainly only talk to your mates or your family, but people who were quite a lot like you, you would read your newspaper, the TV news or whatever that you most liked. You didn't really get much regular encounters with people who thought very differently from you. And so you could sort of think you were living in a nice, cosy consensus where everyone thinks roughly the same as you do. Even sort of your neighbours and your community 
that tends to be people who are fairly similar to you in that they're of a similar income, they'll be city or city, town or country, all of those things in common. We now see loads of people on the internet who seem to put out opinions and some of them are different to ours and that is obviously outrageous. And so I think we can be quite inflamed by seeing lots of people take very, very different conclusions from the day than we do. Some of them factually wrong, but of course, dare we say it, all of us sometimes jump to wrong conclusions, etc. And so I think we have that effect which makes us feel more divided. We've lost the nice illusion we could have that most people agreed with us on most things. And maybe it's in time we'll be better. We'll actually come to understand that that was never the case and get better at handling as disagreeing with each other. That might be really naive optimism on my part. I think where we get to a danger is that we grow the sort of set of people with conspiratorial thinking. And that can be quite tricky. Someone sort of once put it to me as, Once you get in the conspiratorial mindset, they all start to join up because you've lost your trust in official sources. You you know, you don't see your conspiracy theory reported in them. You need explanations for that. You've got used to hearing unfalsifiable information. They're not reporting it because they're covering it up. Well, they say it's wrong. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Once you are in that, it's quite a spiral and it takes you into more and more conspiracies and alienates you more and more from people not in that group that you sort of end up pulled into a group. It's why all the conspiracy theories join up, although I would say that, wouldn't I? But it's it's once you're sort of in those groups, in the real world, if you sort of constantly kept talking about 5G down your local, the barman might go, oh, come on, knock it off with that. No one would particularly want to listen to you and you might just sort of get bored with it and move on and not really think about it anymore. Online, you might have a a really niche view that only one in a thousand people share, but you will find those other people very quickly and get a sense of community with them and get it up and then more people will be drawn into it and then drawn into other conspiracies. And so we've got this sort of growing set of people who reject objective journalism, reject balance, reject sort of institutions. That's where I think the danger lies, because I think it's a bigger group than people imagine. On social media, there have been lots of studies done. It's very, very clear. There's a big generational divide. The biggest group often sharing fake news is people over 50 on Facebook. Whereas underneath that, you have a group of people who, millennials, shall we say, who go the other way and distrust everything. The classic line about like propaganda was it wasn't created to make people believe a certain thing. It was created so that people would not believe anything or not trust anything. Do you think all of this like bombardment of information through social media has meant that people just don't trust what they read? I don't actually. I think that's the danger of it. And I think it's what's been particularly interesting with some of the concerns and the reports around Russian misinformation. I think there absolutely have been Russian misinformation operations, Russian interference with the US election, with various other things, but often quite amateurish and quite low-key and not with any particular goals in end. And what's interesting with people who get really over-animated about that kind of misinformation and start accusing anyone with numbers in their Twitter handle of being a bot, for example is they actually end up achieving the goal that you sort of said, more than the bots that they're thinking that they're battling against. Start saying that everyone's a bot or everyone's a Russian agent, and you sort of ruin our ability to debate or discuss even more effectively than anyone else would. And so trying to work out how we can be sceptical consumers of information, but not cynical ones, you know, try and weigh things up, assess them by their source. Is this too good to be true? Do I want to believe this because it confirms my politics or my biases? You know, that's sceptical reading and that's healthy. That's where we should be and want to be. And I think people who've grown up with the internet are generally quite good at this. I think we risk becoming cynical consumers of news, which is just reject everything as 
you know, nonsense and just sort of read what we want to and get quite nihilistic about it. That's as dangerous as the sort of over 60s stereotype of people who will share any old thing and think it's true, which, you know, we shouldn't exaggerate. There are a lot of very, very able and savvy older internet users, but they are statistically far more likely to spread misinformation seven times more likely than a 16 to 24 year old. You know, we keep talking about media literacy for young people. That's not where we should be targeting our efforts. The other big, big change, I think, in journalism uh, over the last 20 years is data. Do you think we have enough data for proper journalism right now? I don't think we have enough journalists for proper data. I think we still really, as a profession, are not where we should be in learning how to deal with a statistical world. But I think it's because we're probably not there as humans. A lot of key findings from data aren't intuitive and go against our instincts. We have to sort of learn that just because things look connected doesn't mean they are. We've got to try and sort of learn about things like confounding variables or all sorts of other things. Trying to sort of see people handle what's a really statistical, complicated story of a pandemic and see actually how hard it is to know things in this world, what really helps, what doesn't, and how long it takes us to find out. I think it's come to a shock to a lot of people. I think the base level problem is I still don't really know many people who've gone, I went into journalism because I'm really good at maths. And some people are really starting to move forward. We are starting to see data journalists in newsrooms. We're starting to see people get a sense that they should be interested in it. But I think we're sort of 20, 30 years behind other professions. And so we're not really alive to a lot of the issues that are active today, which is that actually a lot of the data that we deal with is awful. And I actually encountered this on a sort of interesting level for a story I was doing on telecoms. We sort of have lots of journalism talking about internet and phone connectivity in Africa. And as it's been argued to me, sort of people keep talking about the miracle in sort of countries like Rwanda, etc., saying they've got brilliant internet penetration versus others. Apparently, sort of in practice, it's more that the statistics are all three or four out of years out of date and are quite badly collected in a lot of the countries there. And in practice, Rwanda is lagging behind all sorts of countries. There's quite complicated internet economies there. Ghana, the average number of SIM cards is somewhere between two and eight per person as people sort of go through different data plans of very, very low incomes. And so where we do now have at least an attempt at data journalism, we're still just trying to scratch the surface and use the data we have. We're not yet at the level that journalism provides for other things of going, but how about what we have? Is that accurate? Getting below the surface of it. And so I think we're still very, very early in that particular sort of transformation. We have to address the elephant in the room, which is (laughs) the fact that we are in a global pandemic, which is why we're doing this over Zoom. You can hear my hay fever. I can hear your cats. What do you think is the role of the media in a time of a national crisis? I mean, is it largely like dissemination or is it to challenge the government? Because the government is doing a difficult job across all governments are doing a difficult job. Is it really fair to be bombarding them with annoying questions at this point? What is the media's role? I think if you take the sincere view that media exists as an institution to hold power to account, Mm -hmm. then it's absolutely a non-starter to say it's our job to hold power to account except when the stakes are really high and it's really urgent and important so I think we have to be annoying people and distracting them because that's sometimes how you stop the disaster and if people are having to keep an eye on you know people are accountable at the ballot box once every four years five years in some countries not at all if you have some element of media, people are accountable daily. That does not at all make it a perfect system. And it doesn't mean the balance necessarily lies where it does in normal times. I do think there's a case to be made that 
we should try to be less partisan and less sort of instinctively, the government of my country is not of my favourite party at the moment. What can I find wrong? I think we have to try and do honest accountability journalism. I think that's what audiences want. I think it makes sort of commercial sense as well as moral sense. But that isn't just suddenly turning into the public information wing of the government. I think, you know, the interesting point in your question is, have we done enough to acknowledge it is really, really, really difficult to handle a pandemic? People might have been able to see it a few weeks earlier, but if they'd have acted much earlier, the public weren't alert to it. Loads of other people weren't alert to it. Suddenly, once you're in a crisis... You're having to do a week's work in a day, a month's work in a day. You're never going to be able to get to anything at once. And I do wonder whether the media could have more helpfully framed expectations. What's possible, what isn't, where will there be gaps? This isn't just for the give these poor nice ministers a break, but I think if we do that well, it lets us more accurately say when they are living up to what they should be doing and when they've made mistakes that really stand out. And I think if we just constantly go, well, this wasn't perfect, we sort of have a risk of sort of being the boy who cried wolf. How has has the pandemic changed the way that you guys work? It's been immensely complicated, actually. We try and travel, we try and report on the ground, we try and do a lot of shoe leather stuff. And our ability to do that has been very limited. But you have sort of broader problems than that. You know, investigative journalism, even if you've got somewhere like us producing it, if we're trying to get it out with a TV channel or with a coalition of media outlets, that's always time consuming. You need lawyers, you need lots of senior editors to sign it off, all of that. When there's suddenly this all-consuming news story that has everyone sort of working double shifts already, investigative journalism risks sort of being the thing that has to fall by the wayside. You also kind of have the issue of shouldn't you be investigating coronavirus and the response to it itself? And so we sort of have had to make quite a lot of decisions on should we drop everything and only report coronavirus? If we do that, do we try and be a daily newsroom? What would we have to offer? Does that mean that we now think the stuff that we cared about three months ago doesn't matter? And that's been sort of quite a complicated set of decisions. And we eventually sort of hit on, we have a health reporting team. And so moving them and adding some people to it sort of seemed quite logical. But then We've been looking for issues that fall between the gaps of everyone's day-to-day reporting, not because outlets are doing it badly, but everyone's focused kind of on their own country. And so we did quite an early bit of reporting on drug shortages across the EU, which got picked up in four or five countries, basically just by getting freelancers in different countries rather than travel or sort of use that ability that we used to have, use the fact that a lot of people still have a lot of connections and are looking for work at the moment. But we've also sort of tried to get into the layer below reporting. So we sort of have had lots of reporting now that say on Corona, drugs are running short. We did last week a big piece on the supply chains of Propofol, one of the key drugs, and went, how has it got to a position where it's so hard to keep stocks of it? And what would change that in future? And so it's trying to do something that's not the day-to-day. But then outside of coronavirus, we've kind of had to go, well, look, you know, we have a small team reporting on climate, specifically sort of the environmental impact of the food industry. And would it be rational to pull reporters off climate change, which is probably the biggest crisis of our lives, for corona, which is, you know, hopefully just the biggest crisis of this year. And so having to try and stick to your guns and go, no, this project still matters. We still want to be here when people have the headspace to talk about stories that aren't corona. We want to have some ready to go on other things that matter. And so that's sort of been how we've been approaching it. We've, where we have reporters in areas close to this, move them and try and use them right, do everything we can from working remotely. But then actually on some of them, just double down and sort of go, no, we really do think this matters. 
and will matter again on the other side of all of this. Is there a particular area of the world that you think is doing particularly interesting like investigative journalism at the moment? It's honestly, it's hard to say. I think the interesting thing that's going on with investigative journalism is it feels like it's experimenting more with the rest than the rest of journalism. And I think we sort of have a bit of a lucky head start through things like the Panama Papers, etc. This sort of big set of series of offshore reporting led by the ICIJ, but with loads and loads of other institutions involved. And I think we sort of, more than, say, political or defence reporters or even environmental journalists, investigative journalists have started collaborating which is kind of weird given the sort of historic image of investigative journalists is very much lone wolf, it's like herding cats, it's, you know, name any kind of feral and difficult animal and investigative journalists have been likened to it. And yet we seem to be trying more cross-border things, more collaborative things and different kinds of financial models. You know, people are trying sort of support from readers and crowdfunded investigations. We've done a very little bit of that ourselves. You've got not-for-profits with foundation funding. You've got, even within commercial newsrooms, people being able to sponsor investigation. And so you're starting to see work in specific regions. So you've got things like the Global Investigative Journalist Network. You've got some new Africa-focused networks. You've got Finance Uncovered, which does a lot of work across that continent as well. And so I think it's this effort of trying to take things beyond national borders to say 21st century a lot of these issues and a lot of the subjects of these stories you can't handle it in one country especially if you're a small country the firms are multinational the financial bodies behind them are international a lot of the pressures on the governments are international and so this sort of cross-border approach I think is interesting I think what we have to try and do is prove that it can work when you don't have a big set of document leaks at the heart of it. But I think that's where we're starting to see some real experimentation. I mean, you say investigative journalists have had this reputation as being lone wolves, but it's the most glamorous ideal of journalism. It's uncovering something that people don't know. I worked on WikiLeaks and I worked on Snowden, and so I can't claim there's been no cool glamorous bits, but... I really, I love the fact of it because I agree that sort of in pop culture and in when we get to go out and show off, I think we're in the coolest bit of journalism. I really like it. And it sounds great and you get to sort of play the moral hero. In terms of actual day-to-day, it is comfortably the least glamorous bit of journalism. You know, how we fill our days is endless phone calls, legal meetings. I've spent weeks and weeks and weeks of my life in windowless rooms just reading document after document after document, most of which are mind-numbingly boring. You know, usually to get to that two, three, four thousand word, hopefully really interesting story, we've read maybe four or five thousand pages of absolute wreck. And so, you know, you see your colleagues who work on the TV desk sort of on the red carpet with celebrities or they have their pals there. Your politics mates are in number 10 garden parties, all of this. Everyone has cooler day-to-day bragging rights than the investigations desk. But the flip side is somehow we've managed a really good PR job where we make it look quite glamorous from the outside. As a result of growing, like a lot of governments across the world have got stricter on rights or freedom of the press. Where's the bit of the world that you are most concerned about when it comes to freedom of expression and stories? I think we're seeing a lot of quite troubling things in Eastern Europe, obviously sort of Hungary and and Poland, but also other states which not all that long ago were sort of eyeing up EU membership or sort of looking towards that. I think in terms of where we have had press freedom at least to an extent quite recently, and it's coming under threat. That's the region where I think we could make some quite serious sort of regression quite quickly, especially when you look at the sweeping range of powers sort of Orban has given himself to handle corona. It's very hard to imagine those being reversed. You know, quite bluntly, is is it the area where press freedom is most restricted or most needed? Not necessarily, but a lot of other regions where you would worry about this, there wasn't much press freedom before. 
the sort of particularly interesting ones to watch are some of the really sort of vocal populists where the outbreaks seem more serious. You know, we can look at Brazil especially, but look at Russia and sort of a couple of others. You could see a world where it helps populists seize more powers and makes it harder to sort of hold people to account. You could also see a world where actually the money runs out, the magic fades. It's obvious that they've bungled the handling of the crisis. And we actually could see it result in some opening up or even some quite radical change, which can obviously backfire and go badly. I think where it goes next for the kind of strongman types is really going to depend on whether we're three months into a crisis that's got to have second peaks and all sorts of bigger disasters, or whether the worst is actually over and they can sort of keep a semblance of, well, I controlled it. You know, look, the US was worst. And, you know, I think it's got to be quite some time till we know. Such a cautious answer. I approve of that hugely. Also, I'm so sorry, I misled you. My final question has two parts. Oof, I feel I feel betrayed. So, firstly, part one. What is the story that you think people don't know about but should? Maybe something that you guys have been investigating or just more broadly. And part two is, if you had all of the resources in the world, what is the thing that you personally would most like to investigate? Mm, interesting. One of the ones that I think we don't know about but should, and I am slightly promoting some of our own work, but it's work we haven't done yet. So it's me sort of trying to set set ourselves a goal. But I think a lot of the time we sort of talk about corruption or misconduct or oligarchs or bad behaviour. We talk about it as if it's something, especially in the UK, we talk about it as if it's something that nasty people do overseas And we're just left looking at it and going, oh, no, corruption in businesses, issues with oligarchs, bribery allegations, you name it. I think what's really not appreciated, especially when we talk, you know, even tax avoidance, all of that, a lot of this is actually run out of London. And it's our very prestigious and very shiny legal firms and accountancy firms that set up these structures, or at least the sort of sides of them that are within the law or that help engage the PR firms that burnish the reputations of people who do this. It's our banks often that end up handling the proceeds once they're sort of made legal and respectable. And this very strange sort of game we play where we're supposedly one of the most stable, most respectable sort of rule of law countries in the world, and yet play a huge role in enabling at least morally questionable behaviour overseas. We're trying to report that out, as others have done. You know, Oliver Bullough has been excellent on this. Plenty of other people have have sort of gone to it. I don't think that's understood. I think we do tend to think our businesses do it right and others cheat. And I'm just not convinced that's the case. So I think that's one of the ones where I think there's lots of evidence already out there and we just don't, it's just not known about, it's not thought about. I'm going to pause there and to interrupt just to say we had Oliver Bellows on this podcast talking about Moneyland and it's a really good episode. You should go and listen to it if you haven't. Okay, right. Second part of the question, James. What would you what would you investigate if you had all of the financial backing in the world and the time? It's the one I would love to know is, and people have done bits of it and worked on it, is the exact TikTok inside oil companies on climate change Mm -hmm. Um, because it feels to me like big tobacco times a hundred what did they know when how are their finances built on it how aware of that are they of the inconsistencies between sort of their public statements that they're going green and they care more about it and the fact that their balance sheets are still predicated on getting out every last bit of oil that they have the rights to how much have they sort of allowed and distorted? We can see the consequence of the actions. We can see what companies have done. But that inside working of how aware of they were that when they were making the decisions, what presentations were made, that who knew what, when, and how contrived was it? That's the thing I would love to know and love to have the answers to. 
And of course, it's so, so difficult to find out. And maybe not even where, if you had all of this, you should be putting the effort. But I feel like we have a habit of treating some of this climate change stuff as if it's a force of nature. It's something that just happens to us and we have to cope with. And to me, it feels like the product of human decisions and particularly this quite small group. I'd like to know whether they knew what they were doing or not. Well, that's a cheery way to end. Um, (laughs) I'm a regular old ray of sunshine, me. James, well, thank you so much for coming to speak to us. Thank you for having me. Great interview, as ever. That's all we have time for this week. But we'll be here again next week with more exciting interviews. But in the meantime... I'm Ben Horson. I'm Magnus Frimston. And you've been listening to Unlit Grants. <laughs>